Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we discuss Ontario's plan to stabilize health care, the nursing shortages, and more as we do our weekly provincial and municipal recap with John Best from the Bay Observer. According to a newly disclosed internal intelligence report, the Ottawa convoy served as a breeding ground for violent extremists looking to recruit and radicalize convoy supporters. How worried should we be? And one phase of Ontario's plan to deal with the crisis plaguing hospitals is to move elderly patients into long-term care in an already struggling sector. How is this going to affect seniors? It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Lots of reactions still of the announcement yesterday from the provincial government, the health minister specifically, about changes and uh, innovations, as they called them, in the health care plan here in Ontario. And in an effort, of course, to deal with these pressures in the healthcare system, the province is going to be changing things up a little bit with how things are done. And uh, Tina Trujani from Global News has some details. Shoring up Ontario's healthcare workforce, using innovative models of care, and making sure hospital beds are there for patients when they need them. All part of the plan announced today by the Health Minister, Sylvia Jones, who says this will address urgent pressures on the system while preparing for a possible winter surge. We can no longer accept the status quo. The plan to stabilize the healthcare system includes increasing surgeries performed at private clinics with the province covering the cost. Ontarians will always access healthcare with their OHIP card. Also announced today, bringing in another 6,000 health care workers and temporarily covering the exam and registration fees for internationally trained nurses so they can get out on the floor faster. We will continue to engage with our frontline partners, experts in their field, to imagine and implement a future that improves the care we provide to the people of Ontario. That's our promise to you. Tina Trajani, Global News. So you look at these things on the surface and the announcements uh, as stated and you think, well, maybe there's some, some substance to these things. Uh, interestingly enough, though, a lot of the pushback uh, from the medical profession especially has been very lukewarm to negative on this. Uh, I want to bring uh, John Best into the conversation. John, of course, is the publisher of the Bay Observer. And uh, John, pleasure to have you back on the program. Oh, it's good to be with you, Bill. Were you surprised by the uh, the feedback on this? I mean, the, the, the province said they were going to do something drastic, and they certainly seem to have, uh, have you know, uh, checked that box with some of the things that they're proposing to do here. Well, I'm, I'm, what surprises me, frankly, is the fact that this, uh, a lot of these measures appear to be endorsed by the Ontario Medical Association. You'll notice I said the Ontario Medical Association, not the Ontario Hospital Association. Yeah. But uh, uh, so they, it appears uh, that the changes that they're making uh, have, have had some consultation with at least one part of the, uh, the medical community. Um, I, I'm not surprised at any pushback that any change in, in our healthcare system, uh, there, there's so many vested interests uh, involved in, in the healthcare system that, that uh, you just can't imagine uh, it ever getting a wholehearted endorsement. Um, the question that, that sort of went into my mind is, so where uh, th- this has got to be kind of a long-term deal bill because where are all these private clinics uh just waiting for more patients i, I you know we know about the shoulders clinic for hernias it's been around for decades but the idea that there's you know that these clinics uh that are now going to take on things like cataract surgery and uh minor uh minor uh, surgical procedures uh to my mind uh, i don't know where they are so to, to, to get them set up. I mean, it's obviously not something that's going to happen in the next 12 months. 
Well, and with that in mind, it begs the question about how long is this going to go on for? I mean, as as the minister mentioned yesterday, and I'm just trying to extrapolate, you know, where this is going to go from what she said yesterday. If if you need surgery, and they say, okay, you can, you, you're going to be scheduled at this private clinic. Uh, just use your old hip card. In other words, the government is going to subsidize uh, those those private sector uh, healthcare centers. Uh, how long are they going to be able to do that before they just say, look, this is not sustainable? Uh, I mean, if it's it's either going to be a public health system or not, and and I'm not being naive about this. I think you and I have talked about this in the past. I mean, the estimates are about 30, 35 percent of the healthcare delivery in this province is already, uh, you know, done in private sector, and there's in some machinations of it anyway. So, uh, you know, for those that say, well, he, they're going to privatize everything, that that horse is already out of the barn. But are they going to go all the way towards that? And, and, and how's this going to look? And more importantly, as you say, how's it going to operate? Is How efficient is this going to be? Well, uh, they're, I mean, the whole purpose of, of these changes is to increase efficiency. Um, first of all, you know, the hospital system is always going to be totally publicly funded. There's, there's absolutely no way that you could transition uh, our hospital system into any kind of privacy, private system. And I, I've never heard anybody suggest, even suggest that. So we're talking, we're really, I think, nibbling around the fringes in some ways, Bill, um, trying to uh, alleviate pressures here and there. Uh, I, I just can't see uh, any of this. Uh, probably the quickest improvement that she referred to is uh, getting these uh, foreign trained uh, nurses accredit- get, getting their accreditation uh, speeded up. And they're, they're talking about removing the, uh, you know, the exam fees and the license fees. I, I don't know if that was the barrier uh, to them getting into the system. I, I suspect that was not the, the number one issue. So there's a lot, you know, we, we constantly use the phrase, the devil's in the details, but in this case, uh, it really is the case. There's so much there. I think, I think though, what she's trying to do, what Ford and the minister are trying to do is get rid of this ideological notion that any kind of privatize, and when we talk about privatization, we're, we're only talking about who the deliverer of the service is, uh, because uh, it will, according to what they're telling us, still be paid by OHIP. So uh, a point was made in uh, one of the Toronto papers this morning by one of the columnists that really, if you think about it, your family doctor is is essentially a private entrepreneur. He, he's uh, rented office space, he's bought equipment, he's hired help, and um, he sends the bill to OHIP. So you know, what's the difference between that, you know, somebody, uh, you know, maybe uh, giving you a needle and, and somebody that maybe is doing a, a cataract removal and also billing uh, OHIP. So th- there's a lot of, uh, you know, ideological language in, in the opposition that I think need, I'm not suggesting it needs to be dismissed, but it, it certainly needs to be taken apart and looked at closely. Well, and she referred to that bit by saying there are some people that just will argue for the status quo. Uh, uh, status quo clearly. with more money. Yeah, status yeah. quo, but just keep shoveling more money at it. So, you know, I, I think intuitively we would say that's probably not going to work and uh, uh, that maybe smaller boutique delivery uh, makes sense in some cases. I, You know, I'm, I'm not an expert on this, but I'm willing to listen anyway. 
Well, and and there are some some positive signs. The, the fact that they're going to give more, uh, I guess, responsibility to paramedics, I think, is is a is a good move too. I mean, that's going to alleviate a lot of the pressure, I think, in ERs and some of that layover time where they're waiting there for sometimes hours at a time until they can hand this off to uh, some of the understaffed ERs that are already there. The the elephant in the room, though, that was brought up a couple of times in the in the Q and A after her announcement yesterday. Uh, was compensation for nurses, uh, which has been a key element and a key part of their concern for quite some time right now. And uh, uh, once again, of course, uh, they're not going to remove the bill that, that limits their their increases to 1%, uh, but it does expire in the springtime. We don't know what's going to happen then, though. Uh, but that seems to be, in, in large part, John, one of the reasons why so many nurses are leaving the profession is the, the, the compensation and obviously the burnout that we've talked about in the last little while. And I'm not so sure that she did anything to address those yesterday. No. And, uh, but, but I think what it, it's what it partially answers the question of where are you going to find the money for some of this? Um, if they can improve uh, the, the number of nurses in the system, uh, then they can probably decrease their reliance on these uh, agencies and uh, we know, you know, the government's paying those agency nurses right now, and they're paying them a lot more than they're paying their the regular nurses. So uh, if you can reduce that agency dependency, uh, maybe that creates more money. I mean, I can't see this system not involving uh, another big increase in healthcare spending. And I think what maybe what they're trying to do is they're saying, okay, we know we're going to have to spend more money. They're trying to get some more from the feds. But at the same time, we've got to find if we can make the system more efficient rather than simply upping the, the bill that we pay every month. I think that's what they're trying to do. Now, whether they're successful, uh, we probably won't know for a couple of years. And and they were vague on, on a whole lot of points yesterday, too. And, and I guess to a point, that's to be expected. Uh, I, I Like any other government announcement, John, I guess this is going to roll out in stages. And, and you know, they'll do the dog and pony show for each one of those announcements at each stage. And maybe we'll get some more details then. But it's it's certainly an ongoing problem. I mean, I was talking to Colin DeMello, our, the global news, uh, of course, Queen's Park chief yesterday. And uh, he told me one story for one of the nursing associations where one nurse begged off work one day. Uh, so the hospital called with these agencies, and the, the agency sent the same nurse uh, yeah. to, to cover the and, – and, and of course, the pay was double what they, should, they would have made ordinarily. I mean, those sort of inequities have to be addressed. Well, and, and I think that kind of, you know, sort of ridiculous situation tells you uh, – if anybody tries to tell you the system is absolutely – it's maxed out, no question about that, but is it maxed out in terms of efficiency – uh, there's a prime example uh, where there's a lot going on. And and then we, we look at the situation in Hamilton here uh, where there, uh, where patient records were uh, improperly disclosed to people that shouldn't have seen them. Uh, again, why did that, you know, so you read the news release and they're talking about faxes. Um, you know, I mean, a system that is still so reliant on a piece of 1980s, 1990s technology, you got to ask yourself, is is our healthcare system as efficient as we claim it to be? It, it's it's doing a great job. You know, I mean, doesn't matter uh, even with the COVID that if you, if you had, if you needed quadruple heart surgery or you needed emergency cancer surgery, you still got it. It wasn't as good as it was before, and there's a lot of testing that's backlogged that could be people with very serious ailments that, that haven't been caught in time. But, 
you know, when uh, just the idea that you've got an entire, the, the most expensive aspect of our government is operating and using technology like faxes. You've got, it, it cries for some kind of um, overhaul. Well, and I know we've probably said this a thousand times over the last two and a half years, but, the, you know, the pandemic didn't necessarily create these problems, but it certainly exacerbated them and shone the light on them. Uh, and speaking of, John, I guess that's the other element to this that uh, they didn't really address, uh, but some doctors have talked about, is just about everyone who knows anything about what's going on with viruses uh, says there's probably going to be another wave come September, October. Uh, I don't know how serious it's going to be, you know, and hopefully it won't be serious, uh, but you know, you have to wonder about if these changes are going to have any impact at all, if there's going to be another surge uh, with hospitalizations. I mean, it was it was terrible what happened last time, having to cancel surgeries and things of that nature. And I, I guess the, the, the clock is ticking right now as to whether or not they can implement some of these things uh, in time for something like that. I, I think the short answer is probably not. No, I, I don't think, I think you're right, Bill. Uh, uh, I know the local public health here uh, issued a forecast, uh, one of those Scarson forecasts, and and clearly they're they're looking at a at a fairly significant uptick in uh, hospital admissions uh, towards December. Right now we're sitting around one or one and a half COVID admissions a day, and it looks like it'll get up around six or more. And of course, once they get in there, they don't get out immediately. Um, so yeah, uh, we're, we're definitely going to go into another wave of COVID, although it seems to be morphing into something more like uh, flu season now, in terms of the severity. Uh, you know, thank God we now we have both vaccine and uh, against it, and we also have actual medicines you can take to make it go away. So we're in, you know so much better shape than we were in 2020, but. Yeah, it's, it's, it's coming again, and as soon as the weather starts to cool down, we'll see it. Well, yeah, and of course you mentioned flu itself the last couple of years, of course, because we've been uh, cloistered and, and vaccinated, I guess, for the most part anyway. Uh, flu's been almost a non-issue for us, but uh, who knows what's going to happen this winter too. So it's it's the pressures on the system, I think, that they're worried about. And there, there are a couple of other quick things here, you know, encouraging doctors and nurses to go to underserved areas. I've been trying to do that for about 25 years uh, with limited success. So that, that, good luck with that. I mean, it's something that needs to be done, but... Uh, it's going to be fascinating to see just how this is going to roll out from community to community. Anyway, uh, we shall see uh, in the passage of time. By the way, we are going to talk about the, the impact it's going to have on long-term care. We'll do that a little bit later on in the show. As always, okay. John, thank you so much for the input today. Great to have you with us again. My pleasure, Bill. Take care. That's John Best, the publisher of the Bay Observer, uh, with observations about uh, the provincial government's new health plan and uh, multifaceted health plan too and we'll be dissecting that i'm sure for days if not weeks ahead to find out exactly how it's going to impact our communities you're listening to the bill kelly show podcast on 900 chml uh, newly disclosed documents show that federal intelligence officials warned decision makers that the police dispersal of that so-called freedom convoy back in february uh, in ottawa uh, could prompt opportunistic attacks against, uh, well, politicians or symbols of government. Rob Westgate has some details. The February 24th threat assessment also advised that extremist influencers would leverage the outcome of the protests for continued recruitment and propaganda, regardless of whether COVID-19 pandemic restrictions were relaxed. 
The assessment said ideologically motivated extremists would likely use police enforcement to encourage violent revenge or as further evidence of what they considered to be government tyranny. The partially redacted memo was among several analyses produced before, during, and after the protests, which paralyzed downtown Ottawa for three weeks beginning in late January. Rob Westgate, the Canadian Press. Uh, troubling statistics in this survey. Uh, let's drill down just a little bit and find out exactly what's uh, what the message is here. To do that, we're so pleased to welcome to the program Luke Lebrun, who is an editor of Press Progress, who have uh, extend, have covered this, this story extensively. Uh, Luke, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Yeah, hey, Bill, good morning. What, what this does, I guess, is really kind of validates what a lot of people were assuming uh, as they looked at what was going on in February, Luke. Uh, that there were a lot of people there, I, I'm sure, that just, you know, were anti-vaxxers, I get that. But there were a lot of people there that had their own agenda in Ottawa and, and, and kind of used that whole situation uh, to further their own particular causes. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think it's been obvious to everyone who's been covering this that, uh, you know, the convoy was filled with, you know, it was a pretty diverse mix of people, obviously, uh, you know, people who are who are concerned about various, uh, you know, some people are concerned about vaccines, some people are concerned about, uh, you know, lockdowns and that sort of a thing. But, uh, you know, among among the crowd, there were definitely people who were, uh, you know, violent extremists. And, uh, you know, as, as we reported uh, this week, um, you know, based on some access to information, uh, request that uh, that I filed with uh, Canada Spy Agency, CSIS. Um, you know, we got back a threat assessment report. It was actually a, a bit of a different one from the one that you just uh, mentioned at the top of your show, but uh, it was prepared, uh, I think, about a week earlier. And uh, in this report, uh, they explicitly state that, you know, intelligence officials were aware of the presence of people that they describe as uh, ideologically motivated violent extremists, which is kind of intelligence jargon for what we might describe as, you know, terrorists or domestic terrorists, basically people who are driven by, you know, whatever, whatever ideology and might, uh, you know, carry out acts of acts of violence. And in the report that we uh, that we reported on this uh, this week, uh, it, uh, as you mentioned, you know, they were very concerned about potential attacks targeting elected officials and uh you know it even mentioned um you know a previously undisclosed uh attack or threat of an attack on a federal building uh so there's just uh there's a lot of stuff going on that i think we uh we're just starting to to find out about well and i know there's concerns raised because that you know they looked at january 6th down in the u.s capitol and and i don't i think this report pretty much underscores now that the chances of doing anything around the parliament buildings was highly unlikely but mm -hmm. there are a lot of other government buildings with less security around there aren't there yeah that's right actually so the report that uh that we received i mean it actually specifically talks about um the threat to uh soft targets so you know government buildings and, and unsecure kind of facilities that might you know might not even be in ottawa it might be you know in a smaller community many many miles away uh where you know people aren't really expecting to to see anything um yeah likewise too i mean they're also talking about you know people showing up at, at people's workplaces and private homes and uh you know potentially trying to carry out uh violence um the other thing too that they they talk about you know like they're they they're pretty clear that they were not expecting it to be you know this really well organized you know large group of people that might be attacking uh one of these targets but instead they were more concerned with uh lone actors or a small group of people probably you know who might be acting without much organization or much you know logistical 
uh, support or whatever. Um, and anyways, that was what really seemed to be worrying uh, intelligence officials. Well, and that, that there could be people that, you know, might take things to the extreme who are there, who are simply attracted to the event, right? Yeah, that's right. And another thing that, you know, explicitly is uh, is mentioned in this report is that, that they were worried that um, the convoy was being used as a, a breeding ground uh, for these violent extremists to basically recruit and radicalize people. And, uh, you know, they talk uh, at length about how, you know, this is happening both in person on the ground in Ottawa. Uh, you know, so maybe someone who has, you know, heard about the convoy and maybe is very, you know, loosely sympathetic to their aims, they show up and then, you know, they start meeting people and then they become radicalized that way and then the other the other part of it was uh some of this is happening online in uh you know group chats or through these uh encrypted messaging apps and so yeah i mean that that was kind of the concern is that you know it, they were actually less concerned they say about uh the people maybe you know on the ground in ottawa so much as they are about people on the sidelines that are just kind of passively observing because you know you might have a situation where someone who might be a bit disturbed gets you know inspired to to go off and, and carry something something out we actually saw something like this recently uh um in uh cincinnati right when uh yeah you know yeah. after right yeah so like there was um an individual who attacked an fbi building in uh in cincinnati um it seems pretty clear that they were responding to uh some of the outrage about the fbi raid on uh mar-a-lago and uh the seizure of some documents from uh trump's property there so i think it's that kind of threat that they were they were most worried about as i was reading your reporting on this yeah you're right a few things jumped out at me and i'm, I'm glad you brought uh, about the influence because that seemed to be something that that uh, the uh, the report uh, was was very concerning that being you know it could be somebody in saskatoon or somebody in, in hamilton that that might be watching this and as you say they get involved in chat rooms there's nowhere they have no intention of going to ottawa to be part of the protest uh but some of those people were protesting it, it was just anti-government anti-police anti-authoritary anti-authority uh situations and and those people can can feed off that sort of thing and spread that sort of message to online chat rooms and everything else and and i guess we, i don't know if we're ever going to know the, the the whole impact that that had but certainly the report seems to indicate that it was very worrisome yeah, and I mean, they also explicitly mentioned some of the groups that they were most worried about, right? So they're talking about uh, white supremacists, uh, sort of these far-right militia-type groups, uh, conspiracy groups, kind of like uh, like QAnon. Uh, they were talking about Western Western separatists. Um, and uh, they actually explicitly mention um, two groups. So one is, uh, is kind of a far-right militia group called the Diagonal, um, And then the other one is, uh, is QAnon. And they actually mentioned someone uh, by name in this report uh, who some of your listeners might be familiar with because they were uh, in the in the news recently. So there's this person named Romana uh, Dedulo who calls herself the Queen of Canada. She's mm -hmm. not actually the Queen of Canada, just to be clear, but she calls herself that. Uh, she drives around uh, Canada in this uh, RV and, you know, has these has these followers who are all QAnon supporters. And uh, just last weekend, they were in uh, Peterborough and they attempted to basically storm the police station in Peterborough and uh, place uh, place the police officers under citizen's arrest because they were uh, upset that they were enforcing public health rules. And they felt that because they didn't like that, they could place them under citizen's arrest. And, uh, you know, in the end, uh, there were violent altercations and three people who uh, tried to place the police under citizen's arrest ended up getting arrested themselves. 
Yeah, and, and a very colorful response from the mayor of Peterborough too. That's uh, right. That's Twitter, right. Uh, that, <laughs> that we won't repeat on air, uh, but that's the kind of emotion that gets involved in this. But it it, it does lay out exactly uh, what is going on here: is that other people were using this uh, as a forum uh, to try to engender uh, the the anger, the hatred, the uh, uh, you know the the disrespect for authority and things of this nature. And, 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 and again, I know we, I'm going to get emails. And I'm sure you will, as soon as we finish our conversation, that wasn't the case at all. We're not saying everybody that was in Ottawa, uh, for that, those times, uh, was a white supremacist. And we're not saying they were all anarchists. We're saying there were those people present and the authorities knew that. I mean, they were tracking, they were, they were, taking names, so to speak, about who was up there and what representation, uh, because they track these groups anyway. And all of a sudden, hey, there's so-and-so, that, that's a QAnon supporter. That's and, and on and on it goes like that. So those mm-hmm. elements were there, which I guess is what raised the concern for an awful lot of the, the authorities that were in there. Yeah. And, you know, frankly, I think what these kinds of reports underline is that if you are one of these people who are, you know, maybe a passive supporter of some of the aims of the convoy and you don't, you know, consider yourself a white supremacist or, uh, you know, a violent uh, extremist, you know, you should probably be pretty, um, you know, careful about the kinds of things you're saying and how, you know, how inflammatory your rhetoric might be, because there are people, uh, you know, as this report is, is, is underlining, uh, who might be, you know, watching on the sidelines and end up getting uh, inspired to do something that, uh, you know, is just really violent and causes a lot of harm. The other way about that violence, and let's talk about that, because that was a contentious point uh, while the uh, the occupation was going on, that no, they're, they're just having the, the slippery slide and they're just having a good time. Uh, there were uh, reports, and, and I guess the, the report touches on this, uh, according to your reporting on this one, of violence. I mean, politicians were being threatened, uh, uh, you know, specifically the prime minister, but other politicians as well. And hmm. you don't know just because people say, no, that's not what we're here for. It doesn't mean that uh, there isn't somebody there that could do that sort of thing. And we saw that happen. It can easily get out of hand in situations like that. So, well, as you mentioned, uh, you know, there are the greater concern seemed to be the messages that were being spread through social media, et cetera, right across the country. Uh, they thought that there was still a, a to use an, a U.S. phrase, a clear and present danger about violence towards elected officials uh, right there in Ottawa during that time. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they, they talk about how, you know, symbolic individuals and symbolic uh, buildings would be, you know, potentially targeted. But actually, you know, the other thing, too, is uh, just, you know, as an Ottawa resident myself and from, you know, seeing uh, what happened and what transpired for, you know, over the course of uh, basically nearly a month. Uh, you know, there were quite a few uh, local residents who were uh, assaulted. There were, you know, uh, numerous hate crimes reported during this this period. Uh, you know, there were, I mean, we're, we're talking about, you know, you know, violence. But I mean, the other thing, too, is like uh, streets are getting blocked. Uh, there were ambulances that were not able to get through. It was, you know, causing disruptions that could in and of itself, uh, you know, you know, cause harming, you know, lead to, to people being injured or dying. Right. Um, I, I mean, as well, I mean, there were, there were, uh, they, they took over the, the baseball stadium, they took over a park, they loaded it up with all these propane tanks and, uh, gas canisters, which, you know, could very easily have, you know, have exploded if, you know, something had gone wrong. Uh, so the, yeah, there were just, you know, all kinds of, uh, all kinds of things that could have, uh, could have spiraled out of control. 
It's a it's a interesting story, and and I'm so glad that you you guys do such a great job, of course, at, at the press programs, uh, to cover these stories and 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 give the unbiased view and and state the facts in situations like this. In a related story, as we say in our business, Luke, uh, since you you are an Ottawa resident, I mean, there are still elements of this story around, and the most recent one, of course, is uh, some of the people that were associated in some way, shape, or form with that protest uh, seem to be trying to set up shop in Ottawa. I guess they've been they've been in a in an uh, an old church uh, for some time right now, and then is there a move afoot now? If I read this properly, uh, to basically get those people out of there. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, just to take a step back for a second. So, uh, you know, after the convoy, probably the vast majority of of participants left. Um, you know, in February, but there was there has always been a, a small contingent that has remained, and then you know, obviously on Canada Day. Uh, you know, people came back and, you know, ever since then, over the last, I guess, I guess we're in late August now. So for about the last month and a half or so, uh, there have been quite a few people that are still kind of loitering. Like I, I see them on the street all the time. There's, uh, one guy in a car covered in anti-vaccine stickers that I see, uh, camping out, just sleeping in residential streets. I see him on my way to, to work. And, uh, and so, yeah. And so now they've, uh, in the last couple of weeks, they tried to buy, uh, basically this, this old church, which has been, uh, deconsecrated. I believe that's the term. Um, and, uh, they're trying to turn it into, uh, I mean, they describe it as kind of a community center. Um, but in actual fact, it's kind of a, a bit of a base camp for them to, you know, do their do their thing and they hold meetings there it's clearly all the same people who have been you know involved with the convoy who are at this at this place uh tamara Le leach's uh husband has been at the at the uh at the church as well and uh yeah so recently actually just yesterday they uh there there's an attempt to evict them because they haven't been paying their rent and uh so that uh so, so that's kind of where we're at right now with the uh with the uh, the convoy church in Ottawa. What uh, very, very quickly because I know we're, we're kind of going off uh down a side road here. Yeah. Uh you mentioned that they called themselves a community center. How do the people in that neighborhood feel about that? Uh very upset. I mean there're quite a few uh local residents who have been uh you know organizing and and you know sounding the alarm. Uh I've I've seen posters up around the uh around the area just sort of warning people about the presence of of uh you know these these characters in the neighborhood. I mean this is in a it's basically in a residential area, right? It's mm -hmm. surrounded by um you know basically small homes and and what have you. And um, and yeah, so people are pretty upset about that. With that being said, when the uh, when the bailiff showed up to put the um, to put the eviction notice on the door, there was a video going around showing local residents playing that song, uh, "Nana Nana Nana Hey Hey Goodbye." Oh, oh yeah, um, yeah. So they were playing that, and that was getting the uh, the convoy supporters a little upset. Well, it's, as, as we know, of course, we've been talking about it on this program. Of course, we're heading into election mode in cities right across the province now. And I'm sure mm -hmm. the uh, the candidates in that particular are going to get an earful when somebody knocks on their door. A any issues you want to talk about? Yeah, <laughs> on and on it goes. So we'll see how this develops over the next little while. Uh, always uh, great to get your perspective on this. Luke, thank you so much for the time today. Thanks for the great work you guys do at uh, Press Progress to report what's happening. And uh, have a great weekend. Yeah, thanks. You too. Take care. That's Luke LeBron from uh, Press Progress, and uh, you can get the details online about exactly what they're doing, what they're reporting, and uh, what's happening with the protest, and, and those who are still hanging around the uh, nation's capital 
uh, for whatever their reasons may well be. And we'll follow that eviction notice and see what they're going to do about that. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking about the healthcare announcement yesterday, because there's so many different facets to it uh, that we don't want to try to cover. And a lot of concerns are being raised by some of the things that the government is proposing. And we already know, I think it's it's fair to say that, you know, we're, we're in a, a very precarious position here with healthcare delivery in the province of Ontario. And some of the stuff that we've talked about earlier in the program uh, that uh, Health Minister Jones mentioned yesterday, surgeries performed at private clinics, uh, but covered by OHIP. Uh, covering the exam and registration fees for internationally trained nurses. And uh, here's the one that that I think raised an awful lot of concern, and it's the one that I'm hearing more and more people talking about. Uh, Sending patients waiting for long-term care beds to a home not of their choosing. Long-term care minister Paul Calandra talked about that yesterday. He says the plan is about getting people the best care in the right place. Ultimately, no, we are not going to be forcing anybody out of a home, but the changes do allow, or out of a hospital, excuse me, but the changes do allow us to continue that conversation, to explain to, the, uh, uh, to somebody who is in a hospital why they can, their needs can be met uh, uh, in, a, uh, in a long-term care home. Well, that's the plan. Uh, a number of people involved in that aspect of healthcare are very skeptical about that. I want to bring our next guest in to talk about that. Uh, Bill Van Gorder is the Chief Operating Officer for the uh, Canadian Association of Retired People, or CARP, uh, and always a welcome guest on this program. Bill, great to have you back on the show today. Thank you, Bill, and good to be back in Hamilton, my favorite place in Ontario. Well, me too. Uh, but let's let's talk a little bit about the announcement yesterday and, and, and the impact this is going to have. You and I have had great discussions over the past about the, the, the conditions in long-term care facilities. Uh, it's It's been something the government says they're trying to do an awful lot about. You know, we're told they've put air conditioning in. We're told the extra staff have been hired. I'm hearing contrary opinions to this. Uh, but now, uh, to just to follow through with what Minister Calandra was talking about yesterday, Bill, uh, essentially, one of the ways they're going to try to alleviate some of the pressure on hospitals is uh, to move people, many of them elderly, I would think, uh, into long-term care facilities. In other words, we, we don't want you here anymore. We don't need you here. You're going to this facility. Now, How? what's your, first of all, your reaction to that? And then we'll get into, into some of the nuances of it. Yeah, well, my reaction, CARP's reaction, is once again, bureaucracy uh, run wild, uh, trying to fix problems from the system point of view, rather than looking at what the patients really, really need. Uh, A horrible example of uh, making decisions without considering the consequences. And there are going to be consequences to this. I mean, I, I get the fact that, you know, and I think most people in healthcare and or have studied healthcare are of the opinion, yes, there are probably people in hospitals that probably shouldn't be there. There are other facilities they should be in or they should be at home getting home care. But there's no talk about funding those other aspects of this, so, you know, and talking about the the money that's needed, uh, especially for for uh, you know home care nurses and things of this nature. Instead, they're basically offloading the problem onto another facility, aren't they? You're absolutely, you're absolutely right. They're they're tweaking. Uh, the system, the way they're doing it is not going to solve the overall problems. It's just going to create more problems and they're going to be felt most uh, specifically by the patients and their families uh, uh, themselves. And, uh, you know, there are three things that uh, are really concern us about uh, this, uh, this move. Uh, first of all, moving people away from where family and friends are uh, is going to be a huge 
burden on them. We know that uh, uh, separation and isolation is one of the things that makes older people have uh, mental health difficulties even more quickly. And what about family caregivers? You know, for some people, almost 80% of the care they get in hospital is provided by family members who come in every day. If you're going mm-hmm. to uh, move these people into a uh, some distant facility where that can't happen, they're going to get less care than they got in the hospital. Well, and I, and I know they tried to concern uh, allay the, the, some of those concerns yesterday by, well, we'll do everything possible to make sure it's as close as possible. Sure, uh, but there's still guidelines. They're, they're talking about guidelines, and guidelines are open to interpretation. We saw that uh, uh, during COVID and long-term uh, care homes where there was a huge difference from one home to another in how these things were interpreted, and that's what happens when there's just guidelines, and who knows how they're going to be interpreted for individual families well the and the other element to this too and of course you know the the, the ltc thing with is so intertwined here with some of these other uh, concerns and factors uh what kind of facility because as you say there are sometimes two different standards we already know there's a different standard of care in, in private as opposed to public uh, run ltcs and that's a concern uh, and, and then you have to wonder about the level of care and the staffing levels there. I mean, the, the long-term care facilities, as you've been telling us for the last couple of years, Bill, are not, they have not solved the problem. Those staffing issues are still prevalent, aren't they? That's right. That's right. That's, you know, that's the biggest problem is, is uh, lack of, uh, lack of staff, lack of people to, uh, to hire, lack of uh, care in the community. So pe- you were right. You said, talked earlier about people who shouldn't be in, in, in the, in the hospital should be elsewhere. And we know that that, that can be up to 20% of, of the people should be somewhere else, but they've got to go somewhere else where they're going to be still getting the adequate, not only the adequate care but have the social supports uh, that they need and what about couples i mean i know that the, the minister said that they would not separate couples but how practical is that if if you are uh, if you're a spouse who's still at home and you've got uh, your your other spouse is in the hospital and they get moved you know, a hundred kilometers away from where you live. That's, that's a, that is a separation, no matter how you, how you slice it. I, it, it seems to me that the people making these decisions really don't live the same lives that the rest of us do, where we have to use this system and understand how it really affects uh, the patients themselves, no matter how convenient for the government and the system to, to make these proposals. Well, it's because they, well, and again, here we go with another problem, but again, it's one that hasn't been solved. They don't inspect them often enough. Uh, or they, if they do, the rare occasion that they do inspect them, they say, uh, okay, we're coming next Tuesday. Well, you, you clean things up and, and, you know, and you tighten up the ship uh, for the inspection. You pass the inspection, then you fall back into, into the, the habits that, that many people are concerned about. So that, that's, that's not an effective way to, to make sure that standards are being met here. Well, it's, uh, but, it's not. And if you don't have the staff, uh, you know, in, in, in many cases, you can't blame the facilities. They're not able to find enough staff to do the jobs that need to be done so they can uh, uh, keep up with the regulations. They say, they say they're going to try to find spaces for these. And, and the other element to this, too, that, uh, I, I, that was in the clip that, uh, that Minister Kleinder was having to refer to, because one of the reporters asked about this, are you going to force people out of the hospitals? Are you basically going to say, uh, you know, Mr. Smith, you, you're leaving. You're going to this facility next, tu- next Tuesday. 
uh, is that going to be? They, they he said there'll be a discussion about it. Well, is well, what if the you know the, there could be extenuating circumstances here where the family says no, we can't do that because we we can't visit, we can't do anything like that. Uh, do they get to stay? Do they get to choose a facility? Basically, it kind of sounds like you're throwing into the system right now, and you go where they tell you to go. Well, exactly, and and you know how are families going to uh, uh, you know discuss back with that? We're quite used to, unfortunately, uh, in in the medical world today, when medical people, when a, doc, a doctor says this is your problem, this is what you should do about it. Now go uh, go do it. Especially older people feel that is no matter how softly it's put, they feel like that's a demand, a pressure that they must do that because my doctor uh, uh, told me, and and and. You know, we see that over, over and over in all kinds of situations. So so having a discussion is a nice way, I think, of just saying, we're going to tell you, you really have to get out of the hospital. We we need your, need your space. You're going to have to go where we tell you to do. And the guidelines will be interpreted the way the people uh, interpreted them want to have them work. Well, uh, one concern that I was brought to my attention uh, in, by email from somebody yesterday who identified themselves as a worker in one of, in some of these facilities, and some of them, because as you say, they're still going back and forth between facilities to try to, to make a decent living. Uh, but they said, you know who, they're going to stick these people in the older facilities uh, because those are the ones that are going to have uh, vacancies at this particular time. Uh, they may not have air conditioning. They may not have the same staffing levels. They may not have the same quality of care. And he says that it's really going to be problematic for these elderly people that are already, as you said, going to feel kind of alienated when they all of a sudden they're being shipped out to another place. Yeah, and even even if those older facilities aren't, as you describe, that uh, deficient, the fact that they are older and they have that reputation is going to put great uh, uh, pressure, concern, worry, and anxiety on the people that are being moved uh, moved into them. So no matter how you slice it, it's not going to be the way that we should be wanting to treat our older citizens in Ontario. What about the here and now? Uh, and, and this is something that, that the minister, neither minister yesterday actually addressed. Uh, and, and that's dealing with the staff that are there now. You know, it's one thing to say, okay, we're going to try to expedite the, uh, the foreign trained nurses and, 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 and care workers. And that's, that's great. That's good news. It's, you know, been trying to get that done for years, but treating the staff now effectively and treating them with, with respect and dignity. Uh, and that includes financial compensation and it includes, uh, working conditions and a thing, things of that nature. There was very little talk about that yesterday. You're, you're right, there wasn't. And you and I have talked about this before. Uh, uh, the working conditions, uh, you know, money, money is, is a concern. But that, you know, we, we, we've, we've known in the, in the human resources business for years that, that people don't ultimately leave jobs because they're not being paid enough. They leave jobs because of their bosses and the conditions that they're uh, working in and the lack of support. Uh, they had one of the best suggestions that's come out recently is to entice older uh, retired workers nurses or at the other levels of the system to come back into the system to be mentors and to help the newer people come along that you know just because you've graduated or just because you're new to the country doesn't mean that you automatically can work at a hundred percent in these new jobs they've got to make sure that that kind of backup is available uh, for people too and I don't hear any talk about doing that 
Well, the staffing is a concern, and, and one other point that uh, this individual brought up in the, in the note uh, was, uh, let's connect the dots here. Uh, this is going to put the long-term care facilities and that whole industry in a state of flux because of the transition that's going to be happening and, the, uh, as you say, the offloading of, of some of these seniors into these facilities uh, that are maybe not mentally and psychologically prepared for this. Uh, but we're also talking, Bill, about, uh, as just about every health expert will tell us, another wave of COVID in September October. What's that going to do to these facilities that, that still have some of these concerns vis-a-vis -vis staffing and, and, and working conditions? Yeah, that's a, that's a huge worry. There's been some suggestion that the beds that they're opening up in these facilities to take people from the hospitals are ones that were being kept uh, in case of another wave of, of COVID. And although we've all got our fingers and toes crossed that uh, there won't be one, every indication at this point is that we have a right to be worrying that we we could very well end up with another wave of, of COVID uh, in the fall when uh, uh, people get indoors. And now that we've we've uh, lif lifted the requirements uh, that, that make people keep themselves uh, safe. So there's a, a huge possibility. And does this mean with moving people back and forth like this, we're going to end up with uh, more COVID getting into these uh, facilities that are already understaffed and under-resourced. Well, and as I just referenced, and I know you hear about this on a regular basis too, uh, I, I know that you know the, the then health minister, uh, you know Christine Elliott, and the premier were very upset that there were people that were going from facility to facility, and of course that was causing uh, this, a spread of COVID within the long-term care facilities. Uh, my sources tell me that's still happening because of the pay scale that's, that's happening there, uh, and I know they're talking about new hires, but we, we, you know when they don't include in that statistic, Bill, it's the number of nurses walking out the back door saying, "I've had enough. I can't do this anymore." That's right. We're not. We're not getting the real. Uh, numbers yet, and and I don't think they've uh, they don't have huge numbers yet. They they promised numbers uh, six and eight months ago of, of hires. We haven't seen any reports yet on how many of those people actually were hired and how many have left in the in the meantime. And in many facilities, we're hearing uh, they're uh, they're they're merely marking time. As many are coming in the front doors, they're going out the uh, the back door, and that's a a huge problem that needs uh, much much bigger uh, solutions than the short-term ones they're talking about now. Well, and I know they referenced the $5,000 bonus for some RNs, uh, and some, by the way, because not everybody qualifies. Uh, I'm hearing more and more from, from RNs that say, well, I haven't seen any of that. Uh, they keep talking about it, but uh, I, I, you know, I don't know if there's a process with getting the well, money out there, whatever the case might be. But it hasn't happened yet, so no, right it, now it's it hasn't. I think it's like promise. it's like many uh, government financial promises; they're announced at least five times before they actually come to fruition. And I think the nurses' uh, bonus is is probably in that regard uh, too. And it hasn't been announced yet that they're actually paying it to anyone. Bill, we're going to stay on top of this, and I know you guys always do at CARP. We'll probably have more discussions on this down the road, but thank you for jumping in today. Really appreciate your time. Happy to do it, and I'm going to keep listening because I want to know what's going to happen in that game tomorrow night. Okay, thanks again. Bill Van Gorder, <laughs> Chief good. Operating Officer for CARP, the Canadian Association of Retired People. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. 
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.